0: It's May 1949. Emmy Jeep has just settled in Raymond, Alberta, Canada. It's a huge change from her city life in Vienna. She soon reconnects with a fellow missionary who now lives in Idaho. Their long distance courtship leads to their marriage in the Cardston Temple. Meanwhile, across the Pacific, the church has reopened the Japanese mission. Toshika Yanagida joins the church having faith her husband will understand. These international stories are next in Chapter 34, Come and See. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast.
1: Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Joining us today is Angela Holstrom, a writer and former member of the Saints team and Melissa Inouye, a historian in the church history department. Thank you both for joining us today and welcome to the podcast.
0: Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, Angela, we would love to hear about how studying and exploring church history, especially the period that this book covers, which is less well known than others, how has this affected your faith? Yes. How did you handle the good and the bad?
2: That's a great question. So. I am um, just a little bit about my background and my involvement with Saint. I am a writer and I was brought onto the Saints team in 2017 to collaborate with the historians who are working on the project, primarily because I have some skills in creating narrative. And so, and I know this has probably been covered a little bit previously, but the historians and the writers work together to make Saints readable, to make Saints something that people enjoy. So I have always been interested in church history. I probably have read more church history or just as a hobby than the average person, but I was not a church historian when I came on to Saints. So being a part of this project has certainly been an education and a wonderful opportunity. It has been a really great experience. I will say writing for volume 3 has been particularly fascinating because there's the Joseph Smith era, there's the Brigham Young era, many of those stories people already know. But we get into the 20th century, and there are so many stories that people don't know. And it was so eye-opening for me to learn these international stories and see how the church has grown and learn all about these pioneers in all of these different nations around the world. I spent a lot of time writing about Europe, That many of the arcs that I worked on were about Europe. And so getting to know some of these saints we'll be talking about today who lived through World War II was an extremely powerful experience. And especially to be able to see that perspective from German-speaking members of the church, what their experience was like, taught me a lot. Thanks,
3: Angela. We're so happy to have you here. Melissa, you're a central figure in the Church History Department's Global Histories work. Will you tell us a little more about what you do in the department?
0: Sure. So in the Global Histories team, we're trying to tell the stories of the Latter-day Saints all over the world from their perspective and using the sources that were produced locally. It's tricky because we're working with hundreds of languages and so many different cultural contexts. It's impossible to get right from a certain point of view, but we're trying to do all that we can to make sure that local voices and experiences come out In these stories, we have a process of review that we go through that sends out the drafts that we have to local people who can then critique them and correct us and help us know how we've gotten things wrong. Because it's really hard to tell somebody else's story. And the best way for things to work is when we can find people telling their own stories. So we're working really hard to develop the infrastructure and also the storytelling processes that help us get things right and capture those local perspectives.
3: It's so important, and it's really valuable, like you said, to just know their stories and learn the names of these significant people in church history. And I do have to say, we did have Melissa Inouye as a guest on the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, and she was specifically talking about her work, including women's stories, just from different perspectives around the world. And I just love the work that you're doing that is putting these names and voices and these stories out there for us to learn from.
0: Right. I think if I were to ask anyone, tell me a pioneer story, I think people would expect, well, you want to hear a story about someone crossing the plains somewhere in Nebraska or something like that. But we have so many pioneer stories and they come from Papua New Guinea and Mozambique and Capo Verde and all these different places where we're not used to traditionally at least when I was growing up, I didn't think about those places as places where there are pioneer stories, but there are incredible stories uh, that we have that show the way that people all around the world have been moved by the message of the restored gospel and have seen tremendous value that is, to them, worth considerable sacrifice and a ton of work. So it's really inspiring to me.
1: Well, thank you, Melissa. And thank you for all of the work that you do on that. Well, let's dive into the chapter And Angela, last time you joined us on the podcast, we talked about Emmy Jeep. And here we are with her again. And this is our final scene with Emmy. I wonder if you could tell us some of the experiences you had as you researched and wrote her story.
2: So writing about Emmy was one of the highlights of my time working on Volume 3, one of the reasons we were able to tell this story so well is because Emmy herself is a fantastic family historian. She kept excellent records. She has a family history that is so rich and complete. It's just chock full of photos and stories and letters and anything that a historian would want. And I also have to give some credit to Emmy's daughter, Gail, who donated a copy of this history to the Church History Library, which is how we came across it. And you start thumbing through it. And those who have been reading Saints and listening to the podcast, you know everything that has happened to the Jeep family from Emmy's parents and Emmy herself living through World War II, living under Hitler all the ways they suffered, all the ways they helped the saints who were in their charge, and then Emmy herself choosing to serve a mission. And so we are now at a point where Emmy has had the opportunity to emigrate. And one of the reasons that her story was so important for us to tell is that the emigration story for saints who are living in Europe Many of them after World War II emigrated to the United States, and we wanted to have that story represented, and Emmy helped us to tell that story. So in this chapter, we are now with Emmy as she is emigrating, and she emigrates to Canada, actually, and that's another thing that we really liked about this story is that she comes to Canada, and is sponsored basically by a wonderful family who hears about her and how she would like to be able to come to Canada because she was still living in Austrian at that time. It was still unclear what kind of freedom she would be able to have if she returned to Vienna after her mission, and she wanted to be able to have all of her freedoms. So she came to Canada and was a little surprised by what she found when she arrived there. She had been a metropolitan girl. She had grown up in Vienna. And then she shows up in this small town and is quite surprised by this new life and has to adjust. But it's during this time that she also starts corresponding with a young man who was a missionary at the same time as she was a missionary. And they begin to have this correspondence relationship.
3: Well, Angela, it's a correspondence and it's so cute that they date over the phone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just think it's sweet because she's concerned like I only know i mostly over the phone. And it's just funny because it probably feels similar to when internet dating was new, you know, for us. And it's just like, is this real? Will this last? Do we really know people? Anyway, I just thought that was sweet.
2: And it's interesting because one of the issues that Emmy had to grapple with so many young people who lived in Europe had to grapple with is wanting to marry someone who was also a member of the church and to be married in the temple, but also having such a small population of saints where they were from. And so for Emmy... I think she loved him. She had strong feelings for him, but she also was a little nervous. There were times where she would be like, okay, wait, am I just jumping on this because this seems like my opportunity to get married in the temple? Or is this really what I should be doing? And for Emi, it ended up being a very, very happy marriage and a good choice.
3: Why do you think their unique courting experience and just their story of how they met and their dating and how they get married, why do you think that's included in Saints?
2: One reason I think is because we did want to talk about the pull of the temple and temple marriage and how important that was to so many saints. As we were building the narrative in volume three, we were always pointing toward the Swiss temple at the end of volume three. And even though Emmy's story is an emigration story, it's also a story of someone who really wants to have those temple blessings and is able to have them. And this was the way that it happened for her. And then we show other Latter-day Saints who remained in Europe who also have temple blessings. But that was one reason why we wanted to tell this story, not just because it's fun to have a little romance, even though it is fun to have a little romance, but it also had historical implications. To use Emmy basically as an example of what happened to many European Saints after the war.
1: And Melissa, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this post-war migration. Emmy's story here, is this common? Do we have many of these sisters coming over to North America?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Not just after World War II, but also after the First World War. And even before that, the world was just changing so much around the turn of the 20th century and people move to different places for different opportunities. Sometimes they move because they, they have to. They're kicked out of where they're living. Just to give an example of how influential international migration has been in the history of the church, if we look at the German Latter-day Saints, um, we see that people moving to and from Germany helped spread the gospel around Europe and in South America, in Asia, Africa, and the Pacific. So, for example, there was Wilhelm Friedrichs, who had moved from Cologne to Argentina. There was a German named Auguste Pelt who moved from Bremen to Brazil. And they were the nucleus of the first church organizations in South America in the 1920s. There were also pioneer groups elsewhere. I think you yourself, James, have done work on the German migrants to Ireland who formed the core of the Dublin branch. And there were also German expatriates in Samoa, Tonga, and East Prussian saints who remained in their homelands after changes in Germany's borders, after World Wars I and Two. They became the first church members in Lithuania and Poland. And then just getting past the realm of saints, um, we also have a lot of people who would study in Germany from countries in Africa and then take the gospel back, like in the 80s and the 90s. So immigration has been so key. And that's the way that the gospel usually starts. It usually starts with Latter-day Saints coming to a place and forming the nucleus of the church there. It very rarely starts where missionaries come somewhere where there's no one and they just start baptizing people. Usually it's the Latter-day Saints themselves go somewhere and then they start the church there.
1: I think that's a really excellent point. And there are some really amazing missionaries in the church. I'm thinking of Misha Marco who join the church and then go back to their people it's the same thing with the netherlands Dutch man who joins the church in wales and then is sent back who starts the work so you're right the history of the church in fact the history of the church in many countries traces its origins to people who've moved people who've gone beyond their communities experienced the gospel interacted with the church and some way or another either taken it with them or taking it back to help the church grow in different locations. And we're going to see that in the rest of this volume. We're going to see it in volume four, because this is such a big part of church history is this movement. And we perhaps underestimate the importance and the role of migration in the history of the church. We often just reduce it right down to those early European converts who come to the United States.
2: That's right. Can I also say, as far as it pertains to the Jeeps, Emmy's faith was nurtured by her strong community of saints in Vienna during such a difficult time. And her father and her mother, as church leaders, provided that foundation. And that is where it all began for her. And when she emigrated, she then added to and was a great benefit to all the communities that she was a part of when she came to Canada and then eventually when she came to the United States. And she has this legacy of supporting and enriching. She was a teacher. She was a leader. And all of her experiences as a European saint made the experiences of the American saints who she lived among for most of her life so much richer because of that. So it's not this one way thing. It's everyone helping each other and strengthening each other with those varieties of different experiences.
0: I love what you say there, Angela. I think that sometimes when we hear the term migrant, we think about people who have been cut off from their sources of support and resources and who are now kind of flung on the charity of other people. But so often when you look at the history of migration, People who have come from another place bring with them these new talents, experiences, and perspectives that enrich not only the economy, but also the culture and the liveliness and the cultural depth of people in a certain place. And you can certainly see that in the context of the church, because in a global church, we think about resources in a different way as well. I think in some ways, if you think about the world as a web of people connecting and sharing things so many of the things, let's say North America is rich in financial resources compared to the rest of the world. But from a gospel point of view, money is one of the least helpful resources in terms of what will help us become like Christ and return to our heavenly parents. When I was doing interviews for the Church History Department for a separate project, but on on Asians, Vietnamese, Chinese, Koreans, Japanese who had come to the United States and brought their rich experiences I was struck by the power of their stories, their experiences, and how needed they were in this place, which was so financially wealthy, so rich in material things, but so spiritually impoverished in a number of different ways. And these stories of the Latter-day Saints from different places were such treasures for those local communities.
1: And I think, just to put it into context, these years after the Second World War, There are so many people moving across the world. We have the £10 POMS where Australia and New Zealand are just begging for people to come and work in their economy. And we certainly get the sense from Emmy. I mean, she loves Austria. She loves her family. She's not running away from them. She doesn't hate her country or anything like that, but she clearly wants to be able to improve her prospects. But also importantly, to have access to things like a temple, to be able to make sacred covenants.
2: One of my favorite details in her history, when Emmy talked about getting on the boat and actually coming to the United States, that as she watched the horizon disappear, she almost wanted to just jump into the water and swim back home. She loved Vienna. She loved her home. But she also felt like there were important reasons that she needed to leave. And I think that's true of so many people who
1: emigrate. Absolutely. And perhaps you could tell us, how did Emmy's family react to her decision? What impact did that have on her family relationships?
2: So interestingly, she didn't know if she would ever see her parents again. And for many people, that was the case, especially um, after World War II in Certain areas that were behind the Iron Curtain, you didn't know what the future would hold. But for Emmy, her parents actually ended up emigrating to the United States as well. And so they came in October of 1952. Not long after this happened, Alois and Hermine came to the United States also, as did Emmy's siblings. And so they actually were able to make a life for themselves here in the United States. It would be a struggle. When I look at Emmy's parents, they were older when they came to leave and come to a brand new country where you don't speak the language. And that was a struggle. But they were at least able to be together as a family.
1: Well, thank you, Angela. And before we go on, I'd be curious, do you have any other interesting stories about how this scene was written?
2: Yes, so... One thing that I think is hard for people to understand when they're actually reading Saints is that every single tiny little detail needs to be supported by research. We can't make up anything as writers. And I wanted to be able to say something about the day that they got married. I wanted to be able to include her feelings about that day, what that day was like. And I just couldn't find anything in the material that we had. And one other interesting thing, too, just as a side note, Emmy died during the time that I had just started writing these scenes. So she died in the summer of 2020. And I wish I could have been able to ask her a few questions just previous to that. But I had been struggling to figure out how to write about the day of their wedding. And I was thumbing through this history that is about 650 pages long, and it has a lot of letters in it. And I stumbled on one letter that was in German and I hadn't looked at it because it was in German. And I looked at the date and I noticed that it was right after they got married and that the letter was to Glenn. And so I just started typing it into Google Translate and suddenly found that she was talking about the day that they were sealed in the temple. And so as a writer on Saints, every once in a while, you'll have those little moments that will give you chills. And so that was a moment for me that I was like, thank you, Emmy, for helping me find this letter in German that I could use as the support that we need to be able to include information about this actual day in the chapter.
3: Thanks so much, Angela. I know that we don't necessarily get all of that in Saints. And so I really appreciate hearing more about Emmy's life. We want to shift now to another person featured in Saints. And as I read about Toshiko's story, I was so impressed that there were Japanese men and women who, despite having just recently been at war with the United States, were willing to meet and listen to American Latter day Saints. So we wanted to just discuss this for a minute. What issues did the church face in Japan in the years after the war? And then how did they overcome them?
0: That's a great question. So, from a broader historical context, The years following World War II saw this huge rise in religious activity all over Japan. It wasn't just our church. There's a couple of reasons for this. The first is that during the war years, there had been this very rigidly enforced Shinto doctrine with the emperor at the center, a nationalist Shinto religion that everyone was supposed to support in the whole country. So the emperor's cause of the war failed, and there's this huge kind of stepping back from this Shinto nationalism because of the American government that was in place. It opened up a lot of space in Japan for these different expressions of Buddhism, less nationalistic forms of Shinto, new religious movements such as Soka Gakkai and other groups, and religious movements that worshipped electricity I mean, just this huge range of interests in religion. And so from that point of view, it was a good time for the church to be trying to find converts in Japan. Now, in terms of resources, of course, Japan was a completely devastated country. So much critical infrastructure had been destroyed. People had no homes. People were living in poverty. There was just such limited material resources at this time. So, of course, that was a problem. You know, the question of the Americanism of the church, the church had this image of being an American church because it was completely led by Americans. The missionaries were American. It was the American soldiers who were the nucleus of the church. That could be a plus and a minus. On the one hand, it was the Americans who were in charge following World War II. It was the Americans who had the power. On the other hand, it was the Americans who had dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and who had firebombed the city and destroyed many cultural relics and who had been the enemy for these many long years of war. So it, it was complicated.
1: Well, Melissa, in this chapter with Toshika, we learn that her father, Tomogoro Takagi, has been a member of the church. He's someone who joined the church much earlier, and he's the key to introduce his daughter to the church and he's a fascinating character in his own way. But Toshiko has her own challenges facing her with her husband and some of the dynamics at play there. But I wonder if you could tell us anything about the sacrifices that Japanese men and women would have to make to join the church. How would this affect their family relationships or their relationship to their culture?
0: That's a great question. So there have been Christians in Japan for a long time, but there's also a history of being a Christian in Japan being really hard. So the first Japanese Christians were Catholics, and many of them were martyred because the imperial state cracked down on Christianity. And there are many people who were crucified or drowned or executed in various ways because of their association with Christianity. So there's this kind of history of Christianity in Japan being that difficult history, a history of struggle. So so because Christianity is a minority religion in Japan, it would have been harder for Toshiko to find a community that would be generally approved of. I think there's also the stigma of being attached to a foreign Christian religion. So I think joining an American church would add additional stigma. And then of course, there's the question of the family. So Japanese culture is very patriarchal, even more so than American culture, if I may say. And the roles for husbands and wives are very clearly laid out. And it would be difficult for a wife to do something without the permission of her husband or without the co-participation of her husband. So it was quite gutsy of Toshiko to join a church by herself. And I'm sure her father's support made a big difference there because he's another patriarch. And it makes the interest in the conversion eventually of her husband even more surprising.
1: Angela, did you have anything you wanted to add to that question?
2: Sure, I think Toshiko is a great example of someone who grew up as a religious seeker. She had always been interested in religion. She attended a Protestant school, but she also had a background in Buddhism and Shinto. And she knew that her father was a member of the church but it wasn't discussed. And part of the reason was because she lived with her grandparents and they disapproved. So even though her father was a member, she really didn't know very much about the church and the church hadn't been there. So the church had left in the twenties and she did not have that background, even though her father was a baptized member of the church. And like Melissa was saying, it took a lot of courage for her to be able to join the church and to attend her meetings. So one of the things that she makes clear in her story is that it's not just joining the church, even though her husband hadn't joined the church, it was the amount of time that it took for her to travel as far as she needed to travel, to attend all of these meetings, that her husband, and especially at that time, he felt like, well, you're supposed to be home taking care of the family and you keep leaving and going on a train for hours to attend these meetings and I don't like it. So when you read that part where he basically says, you know, you need to choose the church or your family, that is a very real threat to Toshiko. But she also decides, I still want to try to make it work. I still want to figure out how My husband can be okay with this, but I don't want to give up what I have found in the gospel that's brought me so much peace and healing after such a difficult time in her life.
1: Such a brave choice, such a brave person to try and straddle a really difficult situation of gospel affiliation, but also family responsibilities. Hopefully our readers and listeners will be inspired by her example.
3: Because I don't think she's unique in that. I loved reading her story because I feel like a lot of people can relate to that, feeling like they're choosing the gospel over their family or feeling like they have to choose the family over their gospel and their responsibilities. And I feel for her and I know that a lot of people can relate to that. So it's a really valuable story to have included.
2: Another thing I think is interesting too, is then the choice to join the church is fully her husband. She's absolutely shocked when he goes on his business trip and comes home and has been baptized. And just on another little note as a writer, one of the things I loved about this story is that he was baptized by a Japanese-American from Hawaii. And as you know, we've spent a lot of time with Japanese-American congregations in Hawaii and how they were foundational to spreading the gospel in Japan. So it shows that connection and that that was a part of his own conversion.
1: Thank you for that, Angela. I think we see this and we talked about it earlier about migration playing a role. And perhaps we should talk about some of the practical difficulties we've mentioned, some of the social, the cultural issues. But the church here in Japan is kind of being rebooted and there are all sorts of pressures. They need literature. They need missionaries. They need people with language abilities. And that ready made community there in Hawaii provide some of those desperately needed things to get this mission up and running as quickly as it did. And I think that brings us to our next question. And Melissa, Angela, you've both been involved in these large global church history projects, trying to bring together different sources, different stories, different individuals to try and talk about the church and its members. I wonder if you both might be able to take just a couple of moments to tell us how you were able to go about fulfilling your tasks when you're writing about cultures and languages that are perhaps not ones that you're inherently familiar with. How do you go about approaching such a complex task?
0: Well, I think the most basic thing is to understand that you're probably going to get it wrong and to leave processes in place so that you can get it right when somebody who knows better can see it and correct you. Just for example, say, you know, I'm an American, and if I just travel to another state, it can be pretty obvious to local people that I'm not from around there. And then if you just multiply that cultural difference by the orders of magnitude that are involved when you're in a different country, speaking different languages, and people have different assumptions, it's just much more significant. So I think that the basic thing is to be humble and to understand that as an English language writer who was raised in North America will probably get it wrong, and to just kind of have that as the assumption. But then once we've got that assumption, we do have to produce something until we have a stable full of global historians from all the countries around the world. Since we do have to produce something, we can then try to just work with the local sources and to say what they say and know more, to not try to interpret what people are saying in a larger context.
2: Yes, I totally agree with that. I think writing saints has been a lesson in humility for me over and over and over again, trying to write about people and places and experiences that are very different from my own. It has been so valuable to have readers and people who respond to drafts, who have personal experiences, uh, backgrounds. They know the scholarship. They know the area. They know what it's like to be, for example, a Japanese member of the church To get their input is so valuable and important to help us make sure that we get it right. The other thing that I would also say is that I constantly had to remind myself of how crucially important it was to be able to get some of these stories on the page because it did take more work. If you just want to do what's easiest and fastest and most accessible, those are the English speaking sources from mission presidents, let's say. We have so much of that. We just have millions of pages of information that if that's how we wanted to learn about Japan, for example, you know, there's missionary journals, there's mission presidents, there's people from America who have a lot to say about their time in Japan, but we wanted to hear Toshiko's voice. And that took extra work and that took extra time. And James, I know you were involved in helping us make sure we had Toshiko's voice. She had written an autobiography, but the only access we had to it was in Japanese. And so we had to get it translated. And that can be a time consuming and costly process because we don't even really know what's there until it's translated. But we have to make that investment in order to have Toshiko's own voice represented, which was so important
3: what feedback have you received about the saints book and how have you seen the volume used, particularly outside of the United States, continuing this conversation that we have about these global characters and these voices from around the world. I'd love to hear about that feedback.
2: Well, I will say one thing that I've heard stories of people who have received translated versions of saints. So a dear friend of mine is Russian grew up in the Soviet union Her mother joined the church much later in life, and she just treasured the Russian translation of saints. But really where we're going to start to see this explode to where people are saying, this is my story, is here in Volume 3 and then in Volume 4. Because Volumes 1 and 2 still are pretty limited in their geography, but I'm just excited to see what it will be like to hear stories of people from all around the world who are able to say, finally, finally, this story is in a book that is for everyone. It's not just in a book that's targeted, you know, you can write a story about the church in Japan for Japanese saints. No, we're writing a story about the church in Japan for everyone in the church to read because those stories are just as important as the stories that took place in Utah.
0: Amen to that.
1: Well, Angela, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today and just sharing more of your insights and thoughts about this chapter. It's great to have you and grateful for the work that you do in the realm of church history.
3: It was so great to talk to you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.